You're listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's topic is entitled Greater Love. Hello my radio friends. I'm glad to know you enjoy the programs in the series Give Me the Bible. And I sincerely hope this one reaches your heart. It's about love. No, not that soppy stuff you read about in some novels, and not the erotic stuff that is so often portrayed on TV and movies, but real, unselfish love. Recently I've been involved in writing some of my family history and was so impressed with the actions of one of my ancestors that I want to share it with you. On the maternal side of my family were some people who came out from England and sought their fortune working in Ballarat, Victoria as gold miners. In this case, it was my great-great-grandfather. Great-great-grandfather, having bought a horse and cart to carry the goods that were needed for life in the wilds of Australia, as Ballarat at that time was known, and procuring flour and food items to carry them over for months, he and his wife Mary set off for the gold diggings. After arriving at the Ballarat diggings, they pitched their tent by the river that now runs through the town and which in modern times has been turned into a beautiful lake, Lake Wendaree. Ballarat has grown to be a city renowned for its beautiful begonias. Life was very raw and very rough back in the gold rush days, and Mary found it very trying. Numerous Aborigines invaded the settlement, and it was dangerous for a white woman to be alone. Mary would have to go with her husband for protection, and soon she too became proficient in panning for gold, from the stream and diggings. In those days there was not the sophisticated machinery that we now have for separating the gold from the dirt. It all had to be washed in pans and this meant much hard labour and backache. Often they would find the natives had stolen their dishes from the camps and food was always missing from their food store. So life went on with some wealth being wrenched from the earth and eventually a home was built in an outlying part of the district called Creswick. Through the passing of the years, five children were born to them. They were Edward, John, Mary, Eli and Ada. By this time, mines had been established and most of the men in the district worked in the mines. When Edward was 16 and John was 14, they were both sent to work in the mines to help support their mother Mary and the three younger children. Great-great-grandfather had worked long and hard to support his beloved family until one day his heart gave out and he collapsed in the mine. His workmates brought him home to Mary and shortly afterwards he died in her arms. John my great-grandfather, was the second son. He was quiet by nature, resembling his mother in looks and disposition. His gentleness to his brothers and sisters was a pleasure to his mother. 
she could safely leave the younger children in his care while she attended to her work. John loved to read books and would spend many hours at night reading by candlelight. His mind was always inquiring for more knowledge and he loved to read about many places and peoples. He also liked to read scientific material and put the knowledge he gained to use in the improvement of the mine operation. Then came the day of the great Australian disaster. Edward and John were both down the mine. Without a moment of warning, the mine face collapsed and in rushed a great stream of water from an adjoining abandoned mine. The men rushed to the cage which took them up to the surface, but it could not take them all. John and Edward were up to their necks in water. Edward pushed John forward into the cage. You go, John, he said. Take care of Mother and the gate was slammed shut. John saw Edward sink down into the water as the cage moved up. Many men were drowned on that dreadful day. Just inside the gates of the Creswick Cemetery stands a monument with the names of the drowned men inscribed on it. Among the names is to be found the name of my relative, Edward Wood. Edward was two years older than John and was probably stronger and he could have easily pushed John aside and got into the cage that hoisted the men to the surface with ease. But instead, he gave up his place, his life, in order to save the life of his younger brother. What a heroic deed! What a sacrifice! What love! Now, I want to contrast that deed with something that happened to me recently. The local shopping centre near where I live has an underground car park. I had some packages that needed posting, and because it was raining I waited in the underground car park while someone was preparing to get into their car to leave. So I waited patiently for a few minutes with my indicator on to signal that I intended to take the spot when it was free. When the car had reversed out, someone else came in from the other side, although I had been waiting for a few minutes, and the driver of that car, a red faded Commodore, swooped in and swiped the spot. Needless to say, I was not impressed and went out and parked elsewhere. What would you have done? <laughs> oh yes, I thought of that too. But I reminded myself that if I did something to get even with that selfish driver, I would be no better than he. So I let the idea of revenge go. My great-grandfather's brother, Edward Wood, put someone else's interest and welfare ahead of his own. The driver of the Red Commodore put his own interests first. Jesus had much to say about love and how a human being should act toward God and toward each other. Do you realise that the Ten Commandments are all about love? 
The first four commandments are about how humans should act toward God. The rest, including the fourth, are about how we should act toward each other. In Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40, is the record of a short but powerful conversation between Jesus and a Jewish legal expert. The lawyer came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. But how is love expressed, you might be wondering. The Bible answers that question in 1 John 5 verses 2 and 3. And it says this, This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. Love, according to that statement, is expressed by obeying God's commandments. I've heard people say that the Ten Commandments have been abolished at the cross when Jesus died. But that's a load of rubbish. It's a false teaching. It's a deception. The basis for that teaching is a wrong understanding of a short statement made by the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. And here's what it says. God forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood against us, and that was opposed to us. He took it all away, nailing it to the cross. What Paul was writing about here was the removal of the mosaic, or what is sometimes known as the ceremonial law which was a temporary law, with a whole lot of rules and regulations, especially involving the ceremonies and practices regarding the forgiveness of sin. Those practices were no longer needed after the crucifixion because Jesus was the fulfilment of what those practices were illustrating. The Apostle John who was personally there at the crucifixion of Christ, was not writing about the ceremonial law, but the moral law, the Ten Commandments. John was firm in his instructions to Christians that the Ten Commandments were permanent and were to be kept. Paul, in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, also maintained the veracity and continued existence of the Ten Commandments. He wrote, So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. In Romans 4.15, Paul again wrote, and he says this, And where there is no law, there is no transgression, meaning you can only identify sin if you have 
law. Paul, writing about righteousness by faith, had this to say in Romans 3.31. Do we then nullify the law by faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Paul explained that righteousness through the sacrifice of Christ does not destroy the law. Instead, it magnifies the law. Yes, I know there are many people who claim to be Christians who only believe what they want to believe. Others have been deceived by dishonest teaching and preaching. And still others never take the trouble to find out for themselves. Then there are others who think it's okay just to believe and practice only part of what the Bible teaches because they are covered by what Christ has done for them, which indicates that they feel that they have little or no responsibility to bring their lives in order, bring their lives into order to be pleasing to God. And you know what? I fear for such people. We're going to stop here and we'll go on straight afterwards. muddled by mazes of never-ending roads and highways. Lord, help us find your way. 
In a world of easy promises, empty guarantees, and quick claim insurance policies, give us the security of your hand, Lord Jesus. At a time when we are confused by conflicting authorities that would tell us how to manage our marriages, our finances, and our children, oh Lord Jesus, show us your way. As we walk the tight ropes of parenthood in these explosive days, training our little ones to live in a world for which there are no precedents, Lord, we just need you. In all things, gentle shepherd, help us find the way. There's no Just before the break, I was expressing some concerns I have about how some people relate to God. And I was saying about how some seem to just accept um, the good news of the gospel, but don't feel they have any responsibility. And then I have another concern, and it concerns me greatly about several religious groups I know have done a cut and paste with God's holy law. They've modified it to suit themselves. Just have a look at a Lutheran catechism and in a Roman Catholic Bible and you'll see what I mean. Not only has the third commandment been removed and the tenth split into two, but many of the others, especially the fourth, have been modified to the extent that most of the intended meaning is gone. What God wrote with his own finger in stone, signifying perpetuity, has been meddled with by man. I couldn't belong to such a religion as that. I have delivered my conscience, and my conscience is clear only when I do what God requires. And there's another thing that really bothers me. I've interacted with many well-intentioned Protestant people who vehemently maintain that the Ten Commandments are still binding and that they all must be kept. Yet these same people ignore the central pillar of the commandments by substituting something else in the place of what God clearly said. And I'm referring here to the Fourth Commandment that says humanity is to worship and honour God as the Creator on the seventh day of the week. Yet those same people bow to a man-made tradition and treat the proper Lord's Day 
as a do-as-you-please day and worship on another day not authorised by God. Do they believe in doing what the Bible says, or what? Back to the Red Commodore man. What he did was extremely rude and selfish. But it was not my place to seek revenge, as my life is guided by the Lord and his word. In Matthew 5.43, Jesus, after talking about the far edges of love, said the following, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Yes, Jesus said that love should be so extreme that even if someone does something terrible to you, your love should reach even them. Yes, I know that it's hard to love some people, especially those who take advantage of you or treat you unfairly. However, Jesus gave us a model for our behaviour. The title of this week's talk, as you will have noticed, is about extreme love, love that the Lord himself exhibited. These are his words found in Matthew 15, verse 13. He said, My commandment is this, Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Certainly Edward Wood did what Jesus commanded, but Jesus practised what he preached. Just think of it. Jesus, who was God, forsook his glory in heaven and came down here to this miserable planet, then suffered at the hands of unholy men, and was finally put to death at their wicked whims. Yet he came to save them, and that includes both you and me. But did you notice that Jesus said in Matthew 5.13 that the greatest love of all is when someone lays down his life for his friends? The question is, but didn't Jesus die for all? Yes, of course. Hebrews 7 verse 27 points out that Jesus' sacrifice was for all. Here, I'll read the text for you. Unlike the other earthly high priests, he, that's Christ, does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. You see, the reality is that only some people accepted Jesus' sacrifice. Those people can then be described as his friends. The sacrifice is only effective for those who accept it. The rest of the people have to bear the punishment of their sins themselves. Now, finally today, I want to share a beautiful story with you. A little girl whose parents had died lived with her grandmother and slept in an upstairs bedroom. One night there was a fire in the house. The fire spread quickly, and the first floor of the house was soon engulfed in flames. 
the grandmother perished while trying to rescue the child. Neighbours called the fire department then stood helplessly by, unable to enter the house because the flames blocked all the entrances. The little girl appeared at an upstairs window, crying out for help. Suddenly, a man appeared with a ladder, put it up against the side of the house and disappeared inside. When he reappeared, he had the little girl in his arms and brought the child to safety, then disappeared. An investigation revealed that the child had no living relatives and a meeting was held in town to determine who would bring her up. A teacher said she would like to raise the child, saying that she would have a good education. A farmer pointed out that living on a farm would be a healthy and satisfying life. Others spoke of giving their reason why it was the child's advantage to live with them. Finally, the richest person in town spoke about how he could give the child everything she could want. Throughout all this, the child remained silent, her eyes on the floor. Does anyone else want to speak? asked the chairperson. A man came forward from the back of the hall. He walked slowly and seemed to be in pain. When he got to the front of the hall, he stopped directly in front of the girl and held out his arms. The child cried out, This is the man who rescued me! With a leap, she threw her arms around the man's neck, holding on for dear life, just as she had on that fateful night. She buried her face in her shoulder and sobbed for a few moments. Then she looked up and smiled at him. The meeting is adjourned, said the chairman. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He, that's Christ, is the one I want to live with throughout eternity because he demonstrated extreme love for me and for you also, just like that man did for the little girl. So what about it? Will you join me in being part of a group of people who will continue to experience Christ's extreme love for eternity? Well, that's it for today. Until next time then. I want you to receive God's gracious love and his peace as you commit your lives to him.